Welcome to Fearless. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Tuesday afternoon to you. All right, fantastic show planned for you today. Uncle Jimmy still out recovering from COVID. He's doing better, although it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. Your thoughts and prayers uh, continue to bless him. And so please uh, stay prayerful for Uncle Jimmy. Again, I don't, I'm not trying to alarm anybody. I think he's going to be fine. It seems to be a normal COVID battle, but it is a bit of a roller coaster and your prayers and thoughts are important. All right, we have a terrific show planned for you today with just a single topic. I'm going to weigh in on what's transpiring in Afghanistan. And then I'm going to invite in uh, Steve Dace, the host of the Steve Dace Show right here on Blaze TV and ask him to weigh in on the events going on in Afghanistan and what they signify and say about our country. Steve has written a terrific column for The Blaze, why we failed in Afghanistan. It's about worldview, stupid. That's his take. I'm about to share with you my take now. America today isn't hard to understand. In his farewell address 60 years ago, President Dwight, President Dwight Eisenhower explained the destructive path the intelligence community planned for us. His explanation went well beyond expressing fear of a military industrial complex. He warned that secularism, technology, and academia beholden to government would conspire with the military to undermine the greater purpose of our nation. Every failure we're witnessing today, from Afghanistan to big tech censorship, to critical racism theory being taught in our schools, and yes, I said that properly, critical racism theory, it can all be traced to the 15-minute warning Eisenhower delivered on January 17, 1961. The American people have been stripped of their power, a cabal of military, political, technological, media, and academic elites have seized control of our republic under the pretense of fortifying democracy. I call the cabal the intelligence community. The elites who are convinced their degrees, titles, fancy word salads, and wealth make them a superior breed of human being. They practice intelligent supremacy. They grab power in the sincere belief that their ascendancy assures the safety and prosperity of the world at large. They are the most high. Everyone outside this country can easily see America no longer serves a higher power or a higher purpose. The Taliban conquered our military might because they, uh, they justifiably rejected the secular values we tried to impose on their country. That is not written or said as an endorsement of Sharia law, the set of Islamic religious rules that deny women equal rights. It's stated to expose the folly of thinking secular values could unseat religious ones in Afghanistan. You can't subdue the greater Middle East with guns and drones, bombs and airplanes. Muslims and other highly religious people do not fear death the way Americans do. Our military industrial complex 
cannot control the Taliban or end their belief in the patriarchy. They're not trapped in the American-made matrix President Eisenhower predicted six decades ago. Eisenhower's farewell address is too often solely reduced to his military warning. His speech was much more than that. The World War II hero outlined the threat of Marxist political ideology in layman's turn. Here, listen to this part of the speech. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. That is President Eisenhower in 1961 telling us that a war is being waged in the minds of Americans. Would we remain one nation under God or would a hostile atheist ideology overtake our religious values and love of freedom? Eisenhower then pivoted to discussing the dangers of an American society trapped by military expense, listen to this. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. From there, Eisenhower urged Americans to be suspicious of the federal government's influence on scholarly research and science. 60 years ago, Eisenhower warned us about the Trust the Science movement. It's as if he knew one day America would provide funding for a lab in Wuhan, China. Here, listen to Ike again. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. 
partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Mm. A scientific technological elite. Did you hear that? Public policy becoming captive to the scientific technological elite. Doesn't that sound like modern America? Eisenhower forecasted that Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and the other Satans of Silicon Valley that run Google and everything would become our rulers. 60 years ago, our 34th president interpreted George Orwell's book, 1984, which was published four years before Eisenhower ascended to the presidency. Two years after Eisenhower left office, President John Kennedy was assassinated. Five years later, his brother Robert Kennedy and the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated. President Kennedy defied our military commanders in his handling of Cuba. Bobby Kennedy's first presidential campaign speech, conflict in Vietnam and at home, centered on exiting the Vietnam War. Dr. King spoke against the Vietnam War. Is it a coincidence everybody's getting dropped after speaking against the military industrial complex? I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. Neither was Dwight Eisenhower. The whole world can see, even Taliban soldiers hiding in mountain caves, that our military, academic institutions, politicians, spying agencies, media, tech billionaires, and celebrity class have been corrupted by a blind pursuit of power, money, and fame. Long before we surrendered in Cabal, we surrendered the moral high ground through fear and cowardice. As control of America was stripped from the people, a handful of public executions silenced dissent. No one should be surprised the Taliban embarrassed us abroad. Our intelligence community has been embarrassing us at home for 60 years. Coming up, we're gonna roll out to Iowa and bring in Steve Dace and let him respond to my thoughts. I'm gonna respond to his thoughts. But before we do that, I wanna tell you about my good friends at Built Bar. And I just had a Built Bar before this show. You guys know I've been talking about this ever since Uncle Jimmy got COVID, shook me up, helped me to realize, Jason, you're being irresponsible with your weight and your health. You have to address this. This COVID thing is real. You have to protect yourself. You can't rely on everybody else. Built Bar is helping me do that. Built Bar, low, low in calories, low in carbs, low in sugar, is a great pick-me-up 
to start your day. It's a healthy way to approach your workday and energy issues and to help you lose weight. It tastes great. The salted caramel and Rocky Road are now my two favorites. Virtually before every show, I have one. It's a great meal replacement for me. It's a great pick-me-up and energy booster for me, and it's healthy and good. Go to Built.com and use the promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use the promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. Welcome back. Time to roll out to Iowa and bring on the host of the Steve Day Show, Steve Dace. Uh, Steve and I have written columns that, in my view, kind of work hand in hand. There's great synergy. And, and Steve, I just went over my monologue and column and my take. And, and I think we're in agreement that the 1960s were a critical, pivotal moment for American society and culture and the things that we're looking at today from Afghanistan to everything else that's going on in America and why we feel so much discomfort, like what's going on, What th- this is crazy. It can all be traced to what happened in the 1960s. Am I correct in believing that? I agree, uh, Jason. I, I think, you know, historians have a term. It's, it's called a terminal generation. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a generation. There's a, this, there's a theologian named D.A. Carson who has observed throughout human history that cultures tend to operate on three generational cycles. And it's the third generation that's the terminal generation. With the first generation believes, the second generation will accept, and then the third generation will reject. Okay. And, and so if you follow this cycle along the lines, you see this third generation, this baby boom generation gave birth to what was known at the time as the counterculture. And if you look at uh, essentially the, the, uh, the, the notions of what America stands for as a country, what value she is to aspire to, um, and I don't have to lecture you on this with the picture you have on your wall, if, if you were to go and I think if people would be stunned, I don't get into the whole Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican. I don't care about that political crap. Just go listen to his speeches, though. He's giving speeches about, hey, we deserve, we bled for this country, too. We worked the fields of this country, too. We deserve access to those promises in the Declaration of Independence. We have been denied those things for too long. We want that same dream that other segments of the society, including all the European immigrants you just brought in at the turn of the century, that they were given access to. That is totally different from the civil rights language that we hear today, which is there never was a promise of the Declaration of Independence. America's always been evil, always been irreparably and irredeemably racist, and on and on it goes. Every bad idea we are wrestling with now, whether it's domestically and with foreign policy, all stems from the terminal generation of the counterculture. They gave us great music and then pretty much destroyed everything else in the country in the process. And, and, and that's why the fall of Kabul with the helicopters and everything else looks exactly like the fall of Saigon. The two impulses that drove those two things. First of all, it was the counterculture believing, hey, man, we can just make love, not war, tune in, turn on and drop out. You know, we don't have to fight for any of these things. Communists aren't our enemies. In fact, they got a lot of cool ideas, man. And, and I don't want to die on the rice paddy, Delta and Nam uh, is the same thing that goes along with 
What is the point of any mission in Afghanistan? Why are we doing this? It can't build a country at the same time you're tearing yours down. Throw in, you have the same military industrial complex that has mastered the art of mission creep in both cases, which just further disillusions people, which you alluded to in your piece, the same potent potables that were at stake in Saigon in 75 were the same two ingredients at stake, a terminal generation and a bloated military industrial complex in Kabul, Afghanistan over the weekend. Uh, Steve, before I ask my next question, one, I don't think I've ever seen you without glasses. And two, I'm looking, I'm looking at this T-shirt you're wearing, and I can't figure out, is that a Playboy bunny? What, what is the T-shirt you're wearing? This T-shirt is a symbol uh, that groups. This is from a, a, an outstanding ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. And this is the symbol that organizations, um, satanic organizations like the Taliban and ISIS, they will paint uh, as a way, you know, the devil loves to bastardize scripture. So instead of painting the lamb's blood to pass over, uh, instead what they do is they paint this symbol in blood on the doors of Christians in these countries when they come, when they take over, Jason. It means I am in or I am nothing. These people are nothing. Their women are nothing. Their property is nothing. They're less than human. They're subhuman. They refuse to abandon their faith. So you may treat them uh, as as you would any other wanton animal or abusive uh, critter or rodent. Uh, and so that's the symbol that they would put on the doors of both the Taliban and organizations like ISIS in order to justify what they would then do to Christians who refuse to abandon their faith. Mm. So one of the things I think that somewhat alluded to in my column, but it's been a, a big talking point of mine, is that as America has become more secular and more hostile to God and our, our culture engulfed in, in a lack of faith, we've been more controlled by fear. Mm -hmm. And we keep confronting people in other countries and other cultures who are not controlled by fear. And, and one of the biggest fears we have here in America, and I think it, it's a byproduct of being a very secular society, we fear death unbelievably. And, and when we were more spiritual, we took far more risk. We endure, we, we fought a civil war with people knowing, hey, I'm dying to benefit other people. There was less fear of death, less fear of everything. And we keep confronting, particularly in the Mideast, the greater Mideast or whatever, people that have no fear of death and we keep getting embarrassed. Am I right for thinking that our lack of spirituality is imposing incredible fear in our country and society and making us weak? It's the same thing you see with COVID, Jason. Previous generations had polio where you'd work the fields with your old man one day when he's in the prime of his life, the next day, struck down by polio, never gets out of bed maybe. Or maybe you come back in and your kid brother, you thought something was wrong, he was sick, and he's got polio, never gets out of bed. Previous generations driven by an honor-based culture, uh, a, a, a theistic culture, they looked at the threat of, their, the, of imminent mortality and thought to themselves, 
you know, we've got to do something with the time we have. We don't have time for perpetual adolescence, get busy living, get busy dying, get married at 18, 19, start making babies, raising a family. You don't have 40, 50 years to plot this thing out. It could be gone tomorrow. And in the midst of things like Spanish flu and polio, they still mastered the assembly line. They won two world wars before Jonas Salk had his vaccine. They, life still went on. Western civilization still advanced. And you see the same thing has crippled us now. We, we measure life not by the meaning of the time you have, but by the amount of time you have. You are nothing more than a mere survival rate. That's really all that you are. And, and, and on second thought, as I watched those photos in Afghanistan over the weekend in the video, watching young men, I don't know if you've seen now, the planes of Afghani refugees, refugees that were bringing in almost no, no women and children on any of these planes almost all young men of fighting age. And maybe we actually did a better job, Jason, of exporting our culture to Afghanistan than I previously thought, brother, okay? Because to watch scores of young men in Afghanistan of fighting age, to watch them, you know, our forefathers bled in the streets, literally in their own farms, their own plantations to fight off the redcoats, slaves, petitioned the government during the Civil War for the right to die for a country that was that, that was treating them as three-fifths of a person. I mean, and this is just a foreign concept to us today. And so to watch those young Afghanis flee and try to jump on planes and grab the last suckling spot on the American nipple, more I think about it, I think we did a far better job of exporting our culture over there than I originally thought, because they're not willing to fight or die for anything either. They left all their women and children behind to get on the last train to Clarksville, brother. And so I hear that and I read your piece and, and one of the thoughts that I that, that I had was that that we're trying to export a culture that has no connection to God. Mm -hmm. And and if you're going to capture the minds of people and capture their hearts. I just think God has to be a part of the sales process that if all you're promising them is like, Hey, these liberal values and ideas that we have, and we're in control of the universe and we're the smartest people in the world. And, and you need to change the way you treat women because, you know, we say so not, in any way attaching it to a spiritual, godlike, respectful culture and values you're trying to pass on. I just, this is why we're being rejected, I think, all over the globe. Mm -hmm. You know, this separation of America from God is undermining our respect globally, our respect domestically, and it's contributing to the, just the worldwide chaos that we're seeing across America. And, and I felt like that was part of your argument here is like, oh, you guys think these values you're trying to pass on to the rest of the world, everybody's just going to hop on board with. And I'm just sorry. No, they're not. You look at the Marshall Plan after World War II, for example, when we took it upon ourselves uh, to rebuild the countries of West Germany, where my wife uh, ended up being born, uh, the countries of Japan that had invaded us on our own soil. 
we rebuilt those, helped rebuild those civilizations because we believed that we had defeated them to preserve a way of life that was worth modeling and passing on to the rest of the world, obviously within their own unique customs and cultures that they happen to live in. We couldn't do that. Uh, we, we, we could do that in Tokyo. We could not do that in Saigon uh, because the generation that was called to, to fight that battle, frankly, just was beginning to ask a lot of, did God really say kind of Genesis 3 types of questions existentially, uh, and, and were too busy critiquing the culture that they were a part of, as opposed to thinking that it was something worthy of passing on as a light to the rest of the world. And that has just, frankly, con continued on, whether we called it Iraq or Afghanistan. And by the time we get to Afghanistan now, now we have, we, we have essentially practiced a philosophical reductionism, Jason, where our way of life now is not predicated on God-given rights, limited government, uh, with enumerated powers and a constitution, a Judeo-Christian value system, what we used to call the Protestant work ethic, all those things are now gone. And instead, it's just democracy as a mere process. It's That's all that it is. You for, forget the fact that these people are heavily influenced by a culture that thinks the West is driven by polytheism for its belief in the Trinity and, a, and that God had a son. Forget the fact that when they got to the temple mat in Jerusalem and took that over and erected that that uh, or that 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 temple mount there the dome of the rock they inscribed underneath it inside are the words god has no son forget about all those things we're all worshiping the same god there aren't any distinctions there aren't any differences whatsoever we just export our system plug it in you know to the usb drive over there in kabul and baghdad throw it in farsi or 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 Arabic or whatever languages they're speaking there, and they'll recognize it, and they'll just immediately jump to be free. I don't know how much you or your audience knows about Islam. Islam is, doesn't even believe in free will of individuals. In the, history, in, in the history of the Christian faith, we've had all kinds of arguments about what is the limits of human free will and God's sovereignty. They don't argue about that in Islam, Jason. You turn on a, you turn on a weather forecast in Amman, Jordan, maybe the most modernized Islamic city in the world. And it will literally say the temperature tomorrow will be 89 degrees, inshallah, if God wills it. All right. So good luck handing freedom to people who aren't even sure they're any form of, of a free agent. They have any form of a free will whatsoever. But again, discussing those things, politically incorrect, it's icky. Our elites don't like it because it, it invariably opens the door to, well, if this is a cockamamie religious view, is there a better one? Is there a superior one? And they want irreligious views. They want secular views, as you said, because that's what grants them power and control. Well, good luck with that, because every time we flew the rainbow flag out there in Kabul, we were basically producing the Taliban's recruitment videos for them. People are going to follow a bad theology rather than no theology. There has never been any sustainable secular form of human culture in the history of our species. The Soviet Union was the longest attempt at it. It's now in the history books. It doesn't work. We all are made with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. We're all going to worship something. It's just a matter of whether that something is worthy of our worship or not. And so when you offer people the nuts and bolts of a process and somebody else is out there offering something existential, and it might be Salman Rushdie's satanic verses, but bad existential beats no existential every day of the week. And as you put it in your piece today, the only way to beat a bad theology is with a better one. 
We tried beating it with democratic ideals and processes, and instead we suffered. And, and, and this is saying something, considering that this has been an armpit of, of empires for centuries now, maybe the most embarrassing defeat any superpower has suffered in Afghanistan. And that includes several others, including the Soviets in the 1970s. Guys, this is why I, I, I love having Steve on, why you need to listen to his show, why you need to respect. This is one of the, the great voices of our time because we have to come to an understanding. Even those of you that are non-believers, you at least have to understand that our Judeo-Christian values were a great strategy for civilization, progress, the promotion of freedom, equality, all the things that you will not leave America for. And you can talk all the smack you want. You can call America racist and systemically this and systemically, but you're not going anywhere because you absolutely love it here. And the reason why you absolutely love it here is because we were founded in Judeo-Christian principles. I'm not asking you to believe them. I'm just asking you to trust the results. Screw the science. Trust the results. The results produce the country that everybody's banging all over the globe, banging down doors to get in here. You, those of you non-believers, those of you that are critics, we couldn't get you to leave here at gunpoint. So trust the results. The results speak for themselves. I want to go back to Steve and ask him this, because as things continue to play out here in America, and it's no different than yesterday watching the news and watching Tucker Carlson's uh, monologue, reading your uh, column yesterday and today, it, it, it just, for me, I keep just reflecting on Dwight Eisenhower and going, man, this guy may have been one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. And he certainly uh, his farewell speech is one of the greatest things ever delivered and was so prophetic to me. It was it's patriotic. It's a guy that was at the height of military power and then obviously commander in chief and president of the United States. And he courageously said to us, hey, look, if we're not careful, these things are going to happen. These these influence are going to conspire to take us down. And, and, and I sit back and go. And then two years later, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. And then five years later, his brother and Martin Luther King are assassinated. It's like, wow, Eisenhower diagnosis of what was going on in America is one of the most prophetic things I've ever read. As good as George Orwell's book, am I wrong for thinking, you know, Eisenhower, just a great American. And and if you I even was as I'm just doing research, I'm like, what he did with the 1957 Civil Rights Act and sending uh, armed forces to uh, defend those those nine students in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was actually ahead of the curve in promoting freedom. If you, again, you listen to his farewell address, he's talking about, he's laying the foundations, planting the seeds, inspiring Martin Luther King and that generation continue to pursue freedom. If you really analyze his words, he, he's inspiring the civil rights movement. A am I right or wrong for thinking Eisenhower, one of our great presidents and leaders? Not at all. 
you know, I've watched that farewell address of his numerous times. Uh, I used the second half of it when he warns about a coming technocratic class of experts that will rule you because they're driven by government grants. I use that as the introduction to our recent book, Fauci and Bargain, about what's going on with COVID in the country right now. And I think with Eisenhower, you know, you're talking about a man that lived through watching mustard gas melt people's faces off in trenches in the mark. He lived through the, the rise of the, the Great Depression, the rise of Nazism, the, uh, the attack of the fanatic cult of Hirohito in Imperial Japan, meaning that during the course of, 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 the, of the years of his life where he was of age and an adult, Jason, he was not afforded what I like to call magical thinking. And much of what goes on in the progressive worldview today, almost, maybe almost all of it, is magical thinking. It is the idea that the world operates and other people and other cultures operate the way that I foresee as opposed to, or I prefer, as opposed to the way that they actually do. And when you're faced with, when you're faced with biological weaponry, weapons of mass destruction, casualty counts, unlike anything the world had ever seen before in World War I, you're then faced with Holocaust and gas chambers, the economic collapse of the world's greatest economic power, as he saw in the events leading up to World War II and then thereafter. He, if you go back and when he describes the Soviet Union, he refers to them as, quote, atheist in scope, end quote. He uses, that's what he says about them in his farewell address. That is much of what is governing us now. That is the spirit of the age that is governing America now, atheist in scope that ultimately they may or may not have some semblance of spiritual beliefs. I look at Francis Collins, who considers himself a Christian, the man that mapped the human genome, one of the greatest scientific achievements of the age. And now at the head, as the head of NIH, the man has just lied repeatedly to people about data, about COVID, about masks, about, about, about virtually everything. Why? Because maybe in somewhere in his private life, there's a real spirituality but when the going got tough, he just became a functional atheist and relied on his own understanding and the spirit of the age instead. These are all things that Eisenhower warrants us against in his fantastic speech. He has sadly proven to be uh, prophetic. We have fallen into all of the traps that, that he warned us were being set for us as a civilization. And, and frankly, Jason, I don't see a way out of this without some form of like great awakenings. Like what we saw in this in the 18th and 19th century in America, some form of a fourth or fifth great awakening, or as I put it on my show, revival or bust. I don't think we can vote our way out of this. I don't think we can debate or argue our way out of this. And that kind of sucks for me to admit because politics is my full time career and debating bad ideas is what I have, what I get paid to do. But but I think at some point here we're attacking windmills with. Um, with toothbrushes. You know, if you remember the old um, uh, Schoolhouse Rock episode when we were kids, we're going to need something far more formidable. And that is a renewal of the American, uh, of the American faith. Uh, and not faith in America, but the faith of the American. Those are two totally different things. I think faith in America is just another trap that leads us down another road. We need the average American to renew their faith. There needs to be more saints uh, than, than we have sinners right now. Uh, and right now we don't have that. The numbers are against us, and I don't see a way out barring revival. 
I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's why, again, I'm not critical of President Trump or Trump supporters, but I think that's all very limited. And, and if we're really going to win this country back, it's going to be each man and woman reconnecting with God. And <laughs> that's our only hope. We have to return to basic fundamentals. It's like a football team or a basketball team that's collapsed and a, ba- a basketball coach said, hey, let's get in the layup line. We, we got to mm-hmm. just start making layups again before we can fix any other problem. And until we move back to one nation under God, we're not going to fix anything. And, and, and I know th- there are plenty of people that agree or that are con- conservative politically, but aren't religious. And I keep telling them, I was like, those politics aren't going to fix it, bro. Nope. I'm just telling you, if you no, really not. understand this country, if you really understand this country, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and I know they were slave owners and all that, but it's just sin. That's all it was is sin. And we all deal with sin. But did they believe in God? Did they set up a country and, and put together founding documents that had respect for God? Absolutely. And that's why America's made the progress it ha- has had. And, and so let me transition to this question, because some people here, they, they hear political partisanship. That, you know, it's the Blaze and Jason and, and, and Steve, they're, they're political. I, I'm not. But regardless, they hear it that way. I don't think any political party has more responsibility for the position we're in than any other. I, I, I really don't. But I want to ask you, is any political party more responsible than the other for the condition we're in? I mean, if you go back and read the piece I wrote about Afghanistan, um, you know, I I point out one of my childhood heroes, Ronald Reagan. uh, He may have ultimately finished off the Soviet Union, but when he left office, the term deficit spending became just an accepted default setting. And we've been living under the burden of that debt ever since. So you look at George W. Bush. Uh, I took issue in that piece with his second inaugural address. What, what we have right now politically, Jason, is a duopoly. And the way that a duopoly works is that, they, is that two entities have super dominant majority over a, one particular marketplace. And so they have a symbiotic relationship. If one goes too far, they will invariably drag the other with them. It is very clear that whatever was left of the old pro-worker, pro-immigrant, left of center, but pro-American traditional values, Democratic Party, probably died with Bobby Kennedy that day in in that hotel. At the very least, it left with Bill Clinton when he left the White House in 2000. Uh, It's completely disappeared now. It, It is gone now. It has been completely overrun by a spirit of the age that I don't think men like Jack Kennedy or Harry Truman would even begin, or even even Hubert Humphrey, who was their nominee in 68, would even recognize if they were alive today. On the other hand, on the Republican side, I haven't been a, re- a registered Republican in several years. I, the, I joke on my show all the time, the only party I know of that hates people like me more than Democrats are Republicans. Because with them, it's personal. You know, with, with Democrats, they ideologically disagree with me. 
With Republicans, it's personal. See, it's people like me that are the reason why they don't pillage and plunder the Treasury at the same rate the Democrats do for their corporatist interests. And that's when most Republicans get elected to do that, not to fight a culture war. So here we are. Uh, and we have two political parties that rarely, if ever, have served the American people. I've worked on numerous campaigns over the years, Jason. I've had the chance to get access to some of the best uh, private polling money can buy. If I could sum up what the American people think of Democrats and Republicans in every poll over the last 20 years, it would be that Americans don't like Democrats and don't trust Republicans. That they trust Democrats will do what they say they're going to do, and that is the problem, brother. And that they don't trust Republicans will do any of the things that they say to do, but will just, after winning election claim, they can't do anything, and this just assume the position for Wall Street and K Street and their corporatist overlords at our expense all over again. This is the trap in which we currently reside. And that's why I said earlier, I don't believe we can vote our way out of this. That does not mean there are not individual people that I think could at least put a dent in what we're up against if empowered. But collectively, putting your faith in either one of these political parties, at best, you're the little Dutch girl trying to plug holes in a leaky dike. And I, and I, I go back to what you said a minute ago. You know, to me, uh, and you and I are both huge sports fans. America is the Green Bay Packers when Vince Lombardi took over. A once proud, venerable organization that basically invented what pro football meant, but it completely lost its way. And when Lombardi came over from the Giants for that very first uh, camp that he had with the Packers, he burned all the film, Jason. Uh, and, 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 and in his very first team meeting, there are men who would go on to be all-time great players. Forrest, uh, you know, Forrest Gregg, uh, Bart Starr. Um, Paul Horning was known for winning the Heisman at Notre Dame, but he was considered at the time kind of a fledgling NFL player. So, Willie Brown, men that would go on and be in the Hall of Fame. And yet they were a losing team at this point. And he walks in in his very first practice and he says, we're going to start all over again, men. All right, we're, we're, we're breaking this thing down to first things, fundamentals here. And the first thing he ever said to the Green Bay Packers at their very first practice, he held up the football and he looked at him, Jason, and he said, men, this is a football. And he started them from rock bottom to build them back up. And they became the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport at the time. And I think that is what we need. We need Vince Lombardi's in our homes, fathers, in our pulpits, pastors and ministers and priests, um, in, in executive positions of government, in our classrooms, teachers, we need men. I mean, I, I, I love the fact I've gotten so many videos this year from women who have rebelled against co what I call COVID stan. And that's great. But Jason, I got to tell you, brother, if I see one more poor little woman walking into a Rite Aid without a mask only to be picked on by three punk dudes and no dude come to her defense, I swear on my, I swear on my, on my man cave here, I'm going to explode, dude. I, I, enough. Enough of one woman up against the system. One teacher speaking out at the school board. Where are the men? Where are the men? All right. And until we get the answer to that question, we are freaking doomed here. What we need are men who will stand up in their homes, in the classrooms, in their churches, that will stand up, hold up a Bible, and hold up a constitution like Nehemiah, who's got a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other, all right? A Bible in one hand and a constitution in the other. Hold up and say, men, this is America. This is what it's about. This is what it was founded on, these two things. This is first, and th but this is second. Ain't a close second, but it is second. We lose these two things, we lose, period. So we got to start all over here. This is a Bible.
This is a constitution. And until we get men to do this again, we're doomed. We're going to end on this note. I'm going to reference a man on the other side of the argument who is standing up. I'll, I'll give the people on the left a lot of credit. They'll stand up and stand on their beliefs. Uh, I want to ask you about Michael Moore this afternoon or, or last night. He tweeted out a picture over tweeted out a picture of the Taliban and the rioters on January 6th. And he equated them. He said, you know, their Taliban and versus our Taliban. And when I saw this and, and, and I say this and maybe I'm late to the part, but I still had a modicum of respect for Michael Moore's intellect. And then I saw this and just go, this this is one of the most dishonest people on the planet. How can you equate the Taliban armed with AK-47s, standing outside, I'm sure, with rocket launchers on their shoulder to the people in mooseheads that went into our capital. I think this speaks to why you feel a little bit hopeless is because, like, logic and reason and facts have just left the building. There's two possibilities with something like this, and neither one of them are good. One, Michael Moore is just a political grifter, and, and there's plenty on the left and the right. It's what ultimately, uh, 10 minutes after the Tea Party began to make a difference, it began to implode. Uh, you know, we have an ability to monetize partisan political content in this country that's never existed in the history of humanity. And But the problem is, I think a lot of people think, since I can't argue on ideas, I've got to get more sensationalistic. I've got to do more. I got to get more clickbaity. I got to get more outrageous to get noticed. Uh, and so this is either just a really cynical political grift that unfortunately just injects more toxin into the American bloodstream, or it's what he really thinks about people who just wanted to know. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people there that day, Jason. All right. And 1% of them went into that capital. The other 99% just wanted to make sure their votes were being counted. And in the months we've had since, we've had all kinds of recounts and irregularities found in Arizona, Georgia, and in several states. That's what they wanted to know. Are my votes being counted? That's what 99% of those people there wanted to know that day. And for that, they're compared to the Taliban. And, and, I, and here's the reality. Whether it's cynicism or he, this is really um, his ideology, you, people that believe what we do, we can't share a country with people like that because they're not going to share it with us. Okay. That's just the reality. And I think that we have to, that's, that's, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with this. 10 years ago, I had a chance last time he was running for president and Newt Gingrich came to Iowa, former history professor, house speaker, and him and I, uh, and my wife went out to dinner, just the three of us at a sports bar in suburban Des Moines for just a couple hours. And him and I just went back and forth shooting the breeze. And he laid out for me, this was 10 years ago, why he really thought America was the most irredeemably divided it had been since the 1850s. That was 10 years ago, brother. I don't think things have gotten any better since then. Um, you know, can two walk together arm in arm unless they see eye to eye? Can a house divided against itself stand? And I think what we're seeing now is there are irreconcilable viewpoints and worldviews attempting to occupy this exact same landmass at the same time. And I don't think that's likely to end well. 
Steve, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy your vacation. And uh, send me one of those T-shirts. You got it, brother. I'll talk to you later. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. I'm not going to let us go just yet. I want to put a, a cap on this conversation. Turn the music down. They're about to play tomorrow. Turn the music down. I'm going to put a cap on this conversation. I just, I got to do it. It was, I love Steve Dace. I, I love the conversation we just had. Uh, the conversation obviously is for everybody. Uh, but for me in particular, and, and there's a reason, this goes back to why I'm here at the Blaze, why I'm so excited to be here at the Blaze and what we're doing is to engage in conversations like that, hopefully to open people's minds to what's really going on. And, and I say this specifically uh, to our black audience. And again, this show is intended to reach everybody. And, and that's what we're going to do. But it is a little special outreach uh, to black people because, one, I'm black. My family's black. Uh, most of my friends are black. And I've been, I want to engage them in a conversation that opens their minds to what's really going on. There's a racial game being played on us that is distracting us from our higher calling, our higher purpose, our relationship with the Most High. I call him Jesus. I'd, maybe you call him something else, God, whatever. But this racial thing is distracting us from our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can't, we're blinded to the fact that there's an element in, in America, a movement within America that's separating us from our relationship with God and imposing values, standards, laws, cultural norms that are in total objection to our religious beliefs. And this has been going on for 60 years, and that's why I keep making these historical references and bringing it, let's go look and examine what Dwight Eisenhower said in 1961 before I was even born. He was explaining, and I'm trying to connect these things so that you will understand and come to grips with, we're being manipulated and played, separated from our beliefs and the values given to us by our ancestors. And you can think your ancestors are back in Africa. I think my ancestors are here in America, in graves buried here in America. That's not a disrespect to Africa and any African blood that's in me. But the truth is, all I know is America. That's all my mama knows. That's all my daddy knew. That's all his mama and daddy knew. And their mama and daddy. They don't know a damn thing about Africa. I'm not saying that to disrespect Africa. But we are Americans. And there are things that have transpired here in America that have benefited us. And so you can talk all that junk 
and you can talk all that trash on America. You're not going anywhere because you love it here. So quit lying and move into a real space and a real point of view. And then you can start understanding exactly who your allies are. If you have a faith in God, if you have accepted Jesus as your personal savior, your allies aren't them. It's not the left. I'm sorry. I've never voted. I'm not a political partisan, but damn it, I can see which side of the political spectrum is trying to impose a satanic worldview and which side isn't. This conversation, again, I know I came up in the sports lane and I know many of you want me to talk sports more often and, 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 and I do, and, and we do here. We talk about sports plenty, but sometimes events in the world are so big that we can't just talk sports. And I have to seize on these opportunities about these bigger societal issues and have these types of conversations with you so that we can all see the big picture. We need to get back on board with God and we need to understand that our allies are on board with God and it doesn't matter their skin color. If they're a Christian and you're a Christian, you're on the same team. You're more on their team or you should be more on their team than on a team based on color. Because <laughs> it's all in the history books. Black people own slaves too, right here in America. Black skin did not prevent you from being a slave owner. You know what ended slavery? Christianity. You know what got us civil rights, voting rights, freedom? Christianity, not black skin. So anyway, tomorrow we're going to do some more outreach and some more connection with people that think like us, that don't look like us. We're going to keep trying to expand the connections and try to demonstrate to you that we can be one nation under God again and that we can be allies with people that maybe don't listen to the same music at us, as us. Maybe they don't like the same sports that we like. Maybe they disagree with us about this or that, but they do have a faith in God and therefore they're our ally. So we're gonna connect tomorrow with rock and roller Ted Nugent. I can't wait for that conversation. All right, now we can play tomorrow. Who's more, you know, I like tomorrow probably a little bit more than Ted Nugent. That's because I know tomorrow. And she looks better than Ted Nugent. And she loves freedom. But so does Ted Nugent. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, 
never been alone I'll break my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back We are receiving all the seed When we all wanna be free We want freedom I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want.